You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tracy Diamond, Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and thank you for joining us at Maryland State Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped, and welcome to Writers Live. Tonight, we're so thrilled to have Ross Gay reading from and talking about his new work, The Book of Delights. After he speaks, we'll have a Q&A, and then there will be time to mingle and buy books from the local independent, The Ivy Bookshop. Ross Gay is the author of three books of poetry, including Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award, and also Against Which and Bringing the Shovel Down. He is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit Free Fruit for All Food Justice and Joy Project, and he teaches at Indiana University. The Book of Delights, which I relish in saying, even the title dances, has been described as a rambling, keen-eyed, exuberant collection of essays on daily moments of joy. The genre-defying book of essayettes records the small joys that occurred in one year, from birthday to birthday, that we often overlook in our busy lives. Seeing beauty in the mundane makes it fantastic, and as gay muses, can potentially subvert capitalism. He's tender and open-hearted in his observations as he looks at everything from productivity to blackness to family to bees, gardening, ownership of time, language, the Grim Reaper and his tools, holding your pee, fireflies. There is nothing out of place in the daily logging of delights. Gay joins the chorus of writers and artists that say that joy is revolutionary as it is daily as air. So please give a warm welcome to Ross Gay. Hey, everyone. Good to see you. All right, it's good to see you all. Um, thank you for coming. Um, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I'm glad to be here. I'm going to read to you a little bit from this book, which is, um, yeah, it's, you know, over the course of a year, I decided one day, I decided one day, slightly, just, you know, like a week before my birthday or two weeks before my birthday, I, I was like walking in on this beautiful path. There were flowers and bees and <laughs> exuberant beautifulness. And I was like, oh, this is delightful. I should write an essay about it. And then I decided to, at that moment, I was like, oh, that, that would be interesting. It would be really interesting to do it every day for a year or to try to do that. So that's what this book is. It's really like um, an attempt to, you know, the labor of writing something every day for a year about something that can lie to me. I did not do it every day. It's hard for me to do it. I think much of anything every day. Um, but I'm going to start with this one. And I did it from August 1st, 2016 to August 1st, 2017. It's called The High Five from Strangers, Etc. Today I was wandering the square of the small Indiana town where I gave a poetry reading at the local college. A feature of the small town Midwest 
A city hallish building in the center, always with some sad statue trumpeting one war or another. This one had a guy in one of those <clears throat> not very protective looking hats they called a helmet during World War I. He's carrying, naturally, a gun. Jenna Osman's book, Public Figures, alerted me to the ubiquity of the gun, the weapon, in the hands of our statues. A delight I wish to now imagine and even impose, given that beneficent dictatorship of one's own life anyway, is a delight. All new statues must have in their hands flowers, or shovels, or babies, or seedlings, or chinchillas. We can go on like this for a while. But never again, never ever, guns. I decree it, and also decree the removal of the already extant guns. Let the emptiness our war heroes carry be the metaphor for a while. As I was finishing circling the square, I passed a storefront garage with huge Make America Great Again signs. It was a foreign auto repair shop, and inside were mostly Toyotas and Hondas. I sat on into the coffee shop, took my notebooks out, and I was reading over these delights, transcribing them into my computer. And while I was working, headphones on, swaying to the new De La Soul record, Delight, which deserves stone entry, I noticed the white girl. She looked 15, but could have been, I suppose, a college student, standing next to me with her hand raised. I looked up, confused, pulled my headphones back, and she said, like a coach or something, working on your paper? Good job to you, high five! <laughs> and you better believe I high fived that child <laughs> and her pre-ripped Def Leppard shirt and her itty-bitty Doc Martens. For I love, I delight in unequivocally pleasant public physical interactions with strangers. What constitutes pleasant, it's no secret, is informed by my largish male and cisgender body a body that is also largish, male, cisgender, and not white. In other words, the pleasant, the delightful are not universal. We should all understand this by now. A few months ago, walking down the street in Umberto in Italy, a trash truck pulled up beside me, and the guy in the passenger seat yelled something I didn't understand. I said, como? The Spanish word for come again? Which is a ridiculous thing to say, because even if he had come again, I would not have understood him. <laughs> He knew this, and hopping out of the truck to dump in a couple cans, he flexed his muscles, pointed at me, and smacked my biceps hard. Twice. I loved him. <laughs> or when a waitress puts her hand on my shoulder, forgetting she calls me honey, baby even better. Or from someone scooting by puts her hand on my back. The handshake, the hug, I love them both. Once I was getting on a plane, and shuffling down the aisle I saw, sitting at the front of the coach, reading a magazine, my great uncle Earl. I got down on my knees and put my hand on his forearm and said, Uncle Earl, it's me, Ross. He looked at me kind of quizzically, as did the woman traveling with him who did not look one bit like my Aunt Sylvia, which made me look back at my not-Uncle Earl, who looked maybe like my Uncle Earl's second cousin about 20 years ago. And though it was benign, and no one was hurt, it was a little weird, and they looked confused. All the same, given his Uncle Earl died about six months later, I'm delighted I got to see him and touch him gently, lovingly, about a thousand miles away. This is, this is called nicknames. How many of you have nicknames? Most of us ish. 
Yeah, most of us. I am writing in a notebook with the words, pay attention, on the front, which is a cousin to another notebook in my bag with the words, pay attention, motherfucker, on it, printed on a Chandler and Price letter price that I co-owned with my friend, which I have yet to see, for it is lodged in a print shop in Lubbock, Texas. My beloved co-owner, pal, which makes him a kind of spouse, I suppose, who gifted me these delightful notebooks is named Boogie, or Books, and was so named by me, one of my greatest literary achievements. Boogie, or Books, might not be the first name you'd assign to Boogie, or Books, for a number of reasons, perhaps the most significant of which is that he has probably, he has definitely not spent a lot of time dancing, boogieing, which you might ascertain from his appearance, which would be a wrong thing to do, though you'd be right. This is one of the reasons Boogie, or Boogs, is such a great nickname. It's a kind of curveball that has, with much repetition, become utterly natural. And his Christian name, Curtis, has come to seem awkward and clunky. Kind of Lutheran. Kind of Kurt. It's a clothesline of a name, really. The football kind. I, I love that joke. I don't know. <laughs> Another reason I love this nickname, and have now come to love how much I love this nickname, is because Boogie doesn't know that every time I say his name, I'm also invoking the great and similarly nicknamed L. Boogie, or Lauren Hill, whom I am guessing wrongly, probably rightly, Boogie has never boogied to. <laughs> Boogie calls me Southie Cone, which he tells me means sizzle, which I think fits. Though it would be a safe assumption, given my own delight, that the nickname Southie Cone might afford Boogie some similarly pleasurable ironic association, which I do not need to know about. I shortened my nickname to Picon, whatever that means. Anyway, I love nicknames. They delight me. There are evidently people from whom nicknames are repelled like projectiles from Luke Cage's skin. Fried eggs to Teflon. My friend Patrick is one. Though the simple Spanishification of his name, Patricio, time to time, among some of us, is one that has endured, sort of, time to time. Drop the pot, jiggle the spelling, and it might be a good sticky name, Tricio. One that, in a generation or two, might become associated incorrectly and beautifully, and so correctly, with something arboreal. How beautiful is that? I'm a bit of a nickname magnet, and have been assigned the following aliases. Biz Quick, Biz, Rahim the Compassionate, Beef, Beefy, Big Man, Bigs, Biggie, Big Little Big, Big Papa, The Big Gay, Bones, Baby Boy, Baby Gay, The Baby, Booger, Beast, Sammy, Saucy, Saucy, Sauce, Saucy Pants, Dr. Sauce, Dr. Hot Sauce, Doc, The Doctor, Tall Lady, Tall Drink, Wave, Otto's Confoyo, Ross the Boss, The King of Applesauce, Rosky Snozzer, Six, Sace, Unky, Daddy, and several others too lewd or private to share. I don't know exactly what nicknames mean, though a quick reading of mine and the abundance of the buh sound, that babyest of sounds, makes me think it might be primal. I know that I rarely call the people I love by their names. I call them, if it's okay with them, by the name I have given them. I wonder if this means I think of my beloveds as my children. That seems patronizing. Especially because I mostly don't give them money. <laughs> but, on the other hand, how lovely all my mothers, all my babies,
Hello. Pardon our tardiness. No, no, no. <laughs> this is called Umbrella in the Cafe. I'm on my way to New Brunswick for a reading and decided to stop in Jersey City at a bakery on Jersey Avenue called Chapopin with croissants and quiche that smelled so good as I walked in this morning I closed my eyes and reached out like I was falling. This place is kitty corner to a place called Nicole's, a West Indian joint where they have the best roti I've ever eaten. And when I stopped in yesterday on my way home into New York to get one, the owner, Nicole, said to me, I was just thinking about you on Sunday. Had she not added Sunday, the cynic in me might have thought she was just being a good business person. But that Sunday made it precise and kind of holy, like maybe she was praying for me. And however it was, I flitted through Nicole's mind, a little butterfly, a little flutterby, delights me, given the cancer she's been afflicted with these past several years. How beautiful and dark she looked. Like maybe she'd gone home for a few weeks, I wondered. In the bakery, let me interrupt myself to acknowledge how often thus far in my journey of delight, a food or food type establishment and experience is the occasion of delight, that it might form a kind of atlas or map of delights, which is a very good idea for a book, perhaps a companion book to this one, The Map of Delights. I was sitting here reading C.D. Wright's last book. It's a long title. The Poet, The Lion, Talking Pictures, El Farolito, A Wedding in St. Roche, the big box store, the warp in the mirror, spring, midnights, fire and all, which I love and mourn its being the last one, forever the last one. And where I'm sitting with my legs crossed, I'm long-leggedly tall, and sometimes it's a puzzle where to put my legs. My right foot, and a now very large-seeming red sneaker, is in the path of every person who walks in the door and out the door, which makes for a lanky and regular semi-distraction from the page. The proximity, the negotiation, the closeness also means many contacts again and again as I bob my big red foot down, but briefly, so as not to catch a cramp in my hamstring or calf, which would be dangerous. A guy on his way, on his way out, after buying his Americano and scooting by my big red bobbing foot and smiling softly at me and me at him, looked at the drizzle through the big plate glass window, put his coffee down, opened his umbrella, put it over his head, picked up his coffee, then realized, I presume, that he was still inside this bakery. The window was very clean. I saw him giggle to himself, realizing, I think, what he had done. Let me interrupt to mention that a man with a sack of some sort slung over his shoulder just entered Chacopan and exclaimed, Good morning, Jersey City family! And so he lowered his umbrella and walked quickly out with a smirk that today I read as a smirk of gentleness of self-forgiveness. Do you ever think of yourself late to your meeting or peed your pants some or sent the private email to the group or burned the soup or ordered your cortado with your fly down or snot on your face or opened your umbrella in the bakery? It's the cutest little thing. It's called couple again.
Today I found myself, I adore that construction for its Whitmanian assertion of multitudinousness. Licking the little remnants, little stains from the coffee dribbling down the rim of the cup. More fastidious than lascivious, kind of cleaning the cup, like a raccoon. The first time I noticed someone doing this, it was my friend, my professor, Susan Blake. I was back at Lafayette College on a teaching fellowship, and we were meeting over lunch to talk about me co-teaching the Invisible Man unit. She got a warm-up on her coffee as we were eating dessert, pumpkin pie, I think, and I noticed her lick the cup, unselfconsciously removing the dribble stains. I can't recall if she looked to see how thorough a job she did, though I usually do, and we'll touch up where I missed. Nor do I recall if she licked the cup more than once, though I assume she did, since I do, and she was my teacher in licking the cup. I think I wondered when she licked the cup, dragging her broad tongue against the porcelain, if she was flirting, if cup licking was a way middle-aged people communicate desire. <laughs> Being a middle-aged person now, it's no surprise that I worry that any odd gesture might smuggle with it the possibility for misperception as flirting with beginning-aged people, some of whom I teach. And that, friends, is a losing battle. <laughs> By which I mean to say, I don't think she was flirting. And if I lick the cup while in the presence of students, I do it surreptitiously, and never, God forbid, while making eye contact. <laughs> when Professor Blake, which she forbade me from calling her and so made me a kind of adult, when Susan generously read the first two chapters of my dissertation, she asked me, without meaning to hurt my feelings, if I spent anywhere near as much time on my prose as I do my poems. That sucked. <laughs> when she handed the 60 or so pages back, all sliced up with red pen comments, she also handed me a handbook kind of book called Writing Prose, ninth edition, with the ugliest teal cover ever. How do we thank our dead teachers? This is called uh, An Abundance of Public Toilets. <laughs> it's a delight. The public toilet. The clean public toilet. <clears throat> are there enough public toilets here? No. No, there are not. In the library. Libraries are great places for public toilets. Yeah, and books. <laughs> An abundance of public toilets. I don't mean this delight to diminish the dignity violating absence of public toilets, public bathrooms in New York City, which is a failure and a carelessness, a ruthlessness, in fact, that reminds me somehow that ours is a country where property is more valued than people. Nor do I want this delight, which was occasioned by the lavatorial deprivation New York City is which every one of you has a friend with a bad story about, to be a delight about deprivation. Though it might be that deprivation, or the alleviation or deprivation of that deprivation, is one of the sources of delight. Source is the wrong word. One of the flashlights upon delight, the unveilers, the ticklers, some word that explains how delight originates in the delighted is what I mean, and is simply stimulated or awakened. 
Not too long ago, I was buying some lumber at the local hardware store to build a raised bed. It was summer, melon season, a time of year I tend to be abundantly hydrated. As I was sliding my 2x12s into the car, I realized I really needed to pee. Like, really, really. But for some reason, I felt shy asking to use the loo. I wanted an espresso anyway, and I figured I'd just pull into the bakery around the corner. Except when I got there, all the parking was taken. And now it was bad. Real bad. And so I started looking around for abandoned buildings or little clutches of trees where I could piss, but had no luck, being more or less downtown. Not to mention the muscles of my mid and lower back were now starting to seize up thanks to whatever taxing physiological business clamps the urethra shut. I had a friend once who had to pee pad. But being a new guy at a law firm in a meeting that would not stop, he held it for a very long time. Until the meeting did finally stop. And while removing his member from his slacks of the urinal, fainted. I will never forget this story. <laughs> and given as mine is a small town, and mine is a public occupation, I thought better of pulling into the parking lot next to the family video and letting loose against the wall and full of everyone on Grime Street. One of them, of course, an old student who got a C-minus capturing my indecent drainage with his phone for later upload. I chose instead to pee my pants in my car. I peed and peed in my pants, my shorts, in my car. And I peed some more. The word shows there made the not exactly accident seem more volitional than it actually was. <laughs> the driving on a bathroom panic is unsafe, and so I approve of my choice for that reason, too. Regardless, the delight of the car pain was in the alleviation of the mental and physical anguish of holding the pee in. It was a deprivation of a deprivation, and the delight, for it was a delight, as the vinyl seats of my Subaru became a pool of well-hydrated urine. <laughs> Would not have occurred. Are you shaming me? Being <laughs> 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 a pool of well hydrated urine would not have occurred had the original deprivation, having to pee, and nowhere to do it, not occurred. Yeah, yeah, some shame and such. <laughs> this essay is helping me work it out. I fully understand that this delight and what is coming to look like an appeal to you to view it as such might not be a delight. For you. The light is like that. All the same, it seems illuminating. And so it was that when I was in Greenwich Village, again well hydrated, but this time for coffee, without a bathroom, and I asked the barista where he might urinate if he couldn't pee in the place where we just spent four and a half bucks for a short fucking Americano. <laughs> he pointed to the park across the street, which had a porta potty. When I entered, I found that it was a very clean porta potty. And urinating, I noticed for the first time, standing up, kind of tall like I am, that the tops of porta potties have screens that you can look out of. <laughs> Which I did. Like I was in a confessional. <laughs> like I was a priest. Watching the parishioners walk by as the noon bells to the nearby church started to ring. This is called Tomato on Board. What you don't know until you carry a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane is that carrying a tomato seedling through the airport and onto a plane will make people smile at you almost like you're carrying a baby. 
I'm a quiet baby. I did not know this until today, carrying my little tomato, about three or four inches high in its four-inch plastic starter pot, which my friend Michael gave to me, smirking about how I was going to get it home. Something about this at first felt naughty, not comparing a tomato to a baby, but carrying a tomato on the plane. And so I slid the thing into my bag while going through security, which made them pull the bag for inspection. When the security guy saw it was a tomato, he smiled and said, I don't know how to check that. Have a good day. <laughs> but I quickly realized that one of its stems, which I almost wrote as arms, was broken from the jostling, and it only had four of them. So I decided I'd better just carry it out in the open. <clears throat> and the shower of love began. It was a shower of love I also felt while carrying a bouquet of lilies through the streets of Rome last summer. People, maybe women especially, maybe women my ages and older especially, smiling with approval. A woman in a house dress beating out a rug on a balcony shouted, Bravo! <laughs> An older couple holding hands both smiled at me and pulled into each other, knitting their fingers together. My showers might have been disappointed to know I wasn't giving the lilies to a sweetheart, but to my friends, Damiano and Moira, who had translated a few of my poems into Italian and were so kind as to let me stay at their place a couple of nights while I was passing through. On the way to the vegetarian restaurant Damiano's ex-wife owns with her partner, we walked by what I'm pretty sure he said was the biggest redbud tree in the world. It stretched for yards, lounging periodically under the mossy earth, its beautiful black bark glistened by the streetlights. Though translation is an act of love, so my showers needn't be disappointed at all. Before boarding the final leg of my flight, one of the workers said, nice tomato, which I don't think was a come on. And the flight attendant asked about the tomato at least five times, not an exaggeration, every time calling it my tomato. Where's my tomato? How's my tomato? You didn't lose my tomato, did you? She even directed me to an open seat in the exit row. Why don't you guys go sit there and stretch up? I gathered my things and set the little guy in the window seat so she could look out. When I got my water, I poured some into the little guy's soil. When we got bumpy, I put my hand on the little guy's container, careful not to snap an arm off. And when we landed and the pilot put the brakes on hard, my arm reflexively went across the seat, holding the little guy in place, the way my dad's arm would when he had to brake hard in that car without seatbelts to speak of, and one of my very favorite gestures in the encyclopedia of human gestures. Dropped from the tree above, 
that I snagged a thick leaf from the pokeweed plant growing in my not-quite-shed and scooped the less coil of the nuggets for further inspection, for further delighting upon. I was going to write a delight about the turd, I'm saying, with some kind of moral, I'm sure, about finding delight even in Dookie. <laughs> the first clue that I'm a novice naturalist, some of you are already noting it, is that deer scat is not loggish or fingerish. It is pelletish. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Once I remembered that, walking toward the tomato beds I was waiting, I tossed the turd to the ground, nervous it might be raccoon shit. I was trying to remember if raccoons were among the more avid transporters of rabies, and if that might fester in dookie, and if so, if it might permeate my skin, and if so, if it might leave me writhing and foaming at the mouth beneath the blueberries, so different from the romantic way I sometimes imagine killing over in my garden. <laughs> Looking at the late day light gleaming in the seeds and the shit, my tiny reflection winking in every one of them, I remembered Galway Cannell's poem, The Bear, in which the speaker, tracking a bear he's tricked into eating a blade whittled of a wolf's rib, eats some of its bloody scat. He calls it a turd. It is a bafflement that people, myself included, did not immediately consider the poem goofy, or even at very least scatological. It somehow managed to elevate itself into the mythic, the profound. You can imagine the 20-something-year-old boys in a poetry circle jerk reading that poem, none of them cracking the least smile, so immersed in the presence of transcendent knowledge, were they? My friend Dave lifted the veil for me, showed me the poem was serious and goofy, which doesn't in the least diminish my love for many of Cannell's poems, a couple of which I've kind of plagiarized. Anyhow, it often delights me when a great thing is revealed to be also kind of silly. The first time I saw The Exorcist, I was nine years old. My mom, flipping through the TV guide, saw that it was coming on HBO. And she wanted to see it because my dad, a very reasonable man, asked her to hold off when it first came out. She was pregnant with my brother, and people watching the movie were having miscarriages and heart attacks in the theater, both of which used to be evidence of a good movie. In 20 minutes or so, when little Linda Blair disrupts the socialite party by peeing on the rug in her white nightgown, I was very frightened, and I asked my mother if we might watch Falcon Crest instead. <laughs> it's a rerun, she said. Just go to bed if you don't want to watch it. Dear reader, I'm here going to leave a boundary I know I shouldn't, like some of your childless ex-friends before me, to tell you how to raise your children. My brother's and my bedroom was maybe 20 feet from this television. It was maybe three or four seconds by foot away. But my imagination was vast, by which I mean to tell you not to watch The Exorcist with your children, or The Shining, or Rosemary's fucking baby. <laughs> Damn right I was already too scared to do anything by myself. And when little Linda Blair was stabbing herself with a crucifix and vomiting in the faces of priests, I was doomed. I sat on the couch pretending to read the Bucks County Courier Times as I heard the girl about my age panting and growling. I peeked beneath the business section to see little Linda Blair write from inside of her Lucifer ravaged tummy, H-E-L-P. Of course, my dad, the one person in the world who could for sure beat up people, was down at Roy Rogers on Cotman, slinging burgers. When I did finally go to bed, I sobbed. Certain I, too, would be possessed by Satan, which my brother didn't go the extra mile. 
to discourage me from thinking. <laughs> me. Matt, am I going to be possessed? Matt, I don't know. <laughs> me. Am I possessed? Matt, pulling the covers over his head. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> For the record, my mother now knows this was an instance of heroically poor parenting, in part because I rub her face in it often. She puts her forehead in her hand and shakes her head while I bask in her shame. When I mustered up the courage to see The Exorcist again, the redux, I was about 26, I went with my friend Joanna to the theater between 18th and 19th on Chestnut, Philadelphia. When Linda Blair peed on the rug this time, someone said to the screen, Oh, no, she didn't. <laughs> and when her head spun around, someone yelled, That girl is tripping. <laughs> At which point I realized this movie, which had occupied for years a grave space in my imagination, was actually silly. I was freed from the grave. Or rather, I was offered another version of the grave. Laughter in its midst. I'm going to read you just two more. This is called... Called Pulling Carrots. Today we pulled the carrots from the garden that Stephanie sowed back in March. She planted two kinds. A red kind shaped like a standard kind and a squat orange kind with a French name a kind I recall the packet calling a market variety, probably because, like the red kind, it's an eye-catcher. And sweet, which I learned nibbling a couple of both kinds, like Bugs Bunny as I pulled them. The word kind, meaning type or variety, which you have noticed I've used with some flourish, is among the delights, for it puts the kindness of carrots front and center in this discussion, good for your eyes, yummy, etc., in addition to reminding us that kindness and kin have the same mother, maybe making those to whom we are kind our kin, to whom even those we might be. And that circle is big. These are kinds, I am thinking, as I sniff the feathery green tops, making my way through the pile, holding the root in one hand, feeling the knobs and grains, the divots where they've, been grown, where they've grown against a rock or some critter nibbled, or the four or five of the red kind that have almost become two carrots, carrot legs in need of some petite pantaloons. The utterly forgettable magic of the carrot, which applies as well to the turnip and radish and potato and garlic and onion and ginger and turmeric and yam and sunchoke and shallot and salsify and maca and sweet potato, is that because much of the food resides underground, it probably had to be discovered, uncovered, and after the discovering and the uncovering, choosing which ones to replant and replant and replant and replant and replant and replant until there was the long red kind I'm brushing the soil from, until the squat kind piling up at the bottom of the basket. It was kindness. They are our family. Marvelites. My buddy Pat and I went to shoot around at the basketball courts here in Marva today. We were warming up, shooting 12-footers, doing slow spin moves and crossovers, when a young guy from the other side of the court swaggered toward us, holding a ball on his hip, the light gleaming in his earrings, and challenged us to a two-on-two, -two, 
pointed his thumb to himself and his buddy draining threes from the corner. We agreed and went on to kick the shit out of them, 21 and nothing. That's a horrible figure of speech. And I leave it in only to expose the violence we so easily say. We got more baskets than they did. That they were only 12 years old is irrelevant. <laughs> Given as this was their home court. And they even had a crowd watching. Another little girl who, when one of the kids shouted to the gods, they're kicking our butt, said, I hope so. <laughs> they're grown men. <laughs> The funny part of that story, uh, my buddy reminded me, is that we were playing these kids, and, and my buddy Pat, he was like, hey, let's let him score. They <laughs> 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 <It> challenged us. <laughs> this is called Coco, baby. This is the last one already. Thank you for coming, too. It's very nice to do. I caught sight of myself this morning in the mirror applying coconut oil to my body. I was bent over with one foot on the edge of the tub, rubbing the oil into my calves, which have become a particularly ashen part of my body, particularly visibly ashen, as in summer, which I'm trying to address with the loofah and the oil abundantly applied. If you want to get way further into this, and I think you do, I recommend Simone White's essay, Lotion, in her book of Being Dispersed. This time of year, I am mostly brown, except for the stretch from my waist to my mid-thighs, which is a lighter shade, neither of them to be compared to a food or coffee drink. With my leg up like this, bent over, my testicles swaying just beneath my pale thigh, I wondered if, whenever I'm in this position, which is often, oily, cut into nails, I will always think of Toy Derricotte's poem in The Undertaker's Daughter. Whereas a child, she walks in on her abusive father standing more or less just like this, though he's shaken. Seeing his testicles dangling like that, she thinks they're his udders, as he says, the female part he hid, something soft and unprotected I shouldn't see. I watched myself rub the oil liberally on my body while I was still wet, which my dear friend recently taught me to keep some of the moisture in. I got my calves and my feet, lacing my fingers into my toes, when doing this, I often recall another friend who, watching me put lotion on my feet one day, smiled and said, good job. Up to my thighs, inner and outer, around my ass, which seems to want to break out some when I'm sitting too much. Then I get both arms and shoulders, my chest and stomach, and what I can reach to my back. Usually, I oil my face with the residual oil on my hands and finish by oiling my penis. Not always last, but often, which I wouldn't read too much into one way or the other. Today, when I washed myself, particularly when I was oiling my chest and stomach, which I do kind of by self-hugging, I was thinking, how many bodies of mine are in this body, this nearly 43-year-old body stationed on this plane for the briefest? I could see, as I always can, probably kind of dysmorphically, my biggest body, when it was 260 pounds and a battering ram and felt sort of impervious. I could also see my 12-year-old self, chubby and gangly and ashamed. And of course, the baby me, who I don't remember being, though I have seen pictures. When you watch yourself in the mirror oiling yourself like this, wrapping your arms around yourself, jostling yourself a little, it is easy, or easier, 
to see yourself as a child, and maybe even a child who really loved. It is easy, if you decide it, which might be hard, to let the oiling be of the baby you. Or at least I thought so today, looking at myself, whom I am so often not nice to. But the baby you, you oil until he shines. Thank you. Take a seat for the questions. Sure. That was really wonderful. Thank you, Ross. Thank you. Um, I will take the microphone around for anyone that has questions. So if you have any, just raise your hand. Thank you so much. Wow, that was great. Thank you. Um, do you still have that Subaru? I really love it. <laughs> no, I gave it to my friend Amy. Yeah. She's kind of like, she's a garbage like that. She's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I was very hydrated. But I was definitely happy to tell her that. But you cleaned it. I don't know how you clean that. Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you clean that. I'll have to ask her. <laughs> There's another part of that story I got to tell you. I was, um, I was in a hurry or something, so I just went in the house like. I might have been talking to my buddy on the phone and like I got home and I don't know, I was in a hurry and I just went in my house and like changed my clothes real quick and like went out, back out. And then later that night I was at a, there was some music playing at a, a bar called The Bishop and I wanted to go see this music. <laughs> and I was standing there and I was like, that smells like piss on there. Right <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Gotta see you later. <laughs> You mentioned uh, Toy Derricot and Galway Cannell. Is there anyone you're reading right now in particular who really inspires you? Um, let's see. Jose Oliveras. Um, I'm just reading that book right now. Um, what else? Um, you know, I'm kind of reading Rebecca Solnit often. Um, I'm trying to think what's in my bag, um, in addition to Jose's book. Um, oh, Eve Ewing, um, her books. Um, I'm rereading Hilton Hall's, that book, White Girls, that first essay in that book, which is to me like a feat. This is such a feat. Um, yeah, that's a handful of the stuff here. It's funny, I can't remember. I mean, I'm like a little bit of an obsessive. Um, I get books every time I go to a used bookstore. Um, they're going to start popping out of my head, and I'll say them. Yeah, uh, how much has the discipline of uh, preparing and working through this uh, changed your view about your relationship with life itself? I mean, I think there is this fundamental thing. I, I think I kind of had a, a hunch that, that, the, that the, the practice, I call it, I think of it as a practice, would just sort of illuminate that the ground of my life is constituted by many things. Many of them, uh, many of them, uh, the tenderness that happens between us, you know, subtle and overt tendernesses that happen between us constantly, constantly. Um, 
and that to have that turned up and just in terms of like one's soul like we were constantly in the midst of tenderness in addition to other things I think it um, feels important you know it feels oriented in a profound way and I think it probably makes me inclined no no it makes me inclined not only to see but to behave in certain ways you know and I think that feels vital like that we are fundamentally connected you know training that feels yeah thank you yeah is writing about delights always a delight is writing about delights always a delight <laughs> no I mean in, in, in the book you'll see that there's a tension there's a, there's a tension in the book where I'm there are times where I'm trying not to write about something I get caught and about some undelightful thing, and you can tell that it's um, it is not actually a delight. It's this thing where I just got snagged, or I'm trying to trying to stay focused, you know. And um, this kid had a reading of the he, he addressed the labor of delight. He sort of asked me a question. He said the labor of, of this delight, um, and I was like, yeah, that's that's partly that's the labor, not only attending to the things, but attending to the things while there are also things pulling you away to still have this sort of like, yes, our lives are complicated and, and many things are happening and let me pay a little bit of attention to the beautiful things that are happening, you know. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever written something that you didn't understand? All the time. <laughs> yeah, all the things I'm most moved by, I don't understand. A little bit I don't understand. Do you ever think they're foreshadowing? Foreshadowing? What do you mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I do know a little bit. I write songs. Huh? Sometimes, like a year later, the meaning of them will, will uh, show uh, light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Yes, I think so. I think so, yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Say a little bit about the orchard. Oh yeah, the orchard. So um, I I work with a community orchard in Bloomington. It's called the Bloomington Community Orchard, and it's um, it was founded by a woman named Amy Countryman, and it was a like a senior project. She was a little bit older undergrad, but it was a senior undergraduate project in like our public whatever you know environmental affairs program. And it's basically a, she had this, this uh, her question was sort of how you could um, um, think about food security and food insecurity. Um, what are the many ways we can do it? And one of the ways that she sort of thought would be fun and maybe would work in Bloomington as a project was a community orchard. So she did this project. She wrote a paper and her advisor said, oh, you should take that to the urban forester. It's a small town. I mean, it's you know, it's not a, a real big town, so we could just kind of like boom to the urban forester, um, and then he said, "Well, if you show enough support, you can have an acre, and we'll give you a little seed money to start." And yeah, and, <laughs> and it it worked, and it's going strong. And there are classes, you know, probably eight to ten classes there a year. And you know, group pruning and you know, group you know, mulching and work and learn days every weekend. You know, once the weather's you know right. 
<laughs> you know where you're from there? I am. I'm there. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so there's all kinds, I mean, there's all kinds of different fruit trees and fruit bushes and other plants, understory plants. So it's a really amazing study. You know, we don't make a ton of food. The fact of the matter is that the, the plants get diseased and this and that, but we make some, you know, we grow, some stuff grows, and one year, like, there'll be a bunch of apples, and, and the peaches will all get hit with something, and vice versa. But there's always something, and the fact that we, I think the real magical fact of that place is that it brings people who do not know each other to tend for this thing, you know? So all these people gather, kind of out of love, you know? It's magical. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the public and private nature of writing? Like, I, I'm a teacher, I teach writing, hmm. and sometimes it feels like, uh, sometimes it feels like <laughs> that if you talk and talk too much about a thing, it fizzles out. But, like, I think a lot about social media and how people provide this free content, and it's like, okay, it's beautiful, so it should be free, like sunrise and trees and everything. Yeah. But it's also a, a profession and a gift and service. So yeah, just like the public and private nature of it. Like how how do you walk through when you show someone something or when you protect something that that's such a good question, and I wonder about it sometimes. And I always try to honor people's because I'm curious about what people are working on. So I'm often like, hey, what are you working on? <laughs> you know, people sometimes I can see them make up that face, and I'm like, don't. Don't do it. You know, don't tell me. Because there is this thing, and it's, you know, it's, I wonder if, like, songwriting has the same thing, where you can talk a thing, the mystery out of a thing, and then you don't need to do it anymore. And I know part of my process is to, like, I have questions, and I'm writing things, poems, books, essays, etc., out of questions, not out of knowledge. If I kind of talk the question out and kind of have an answer, then I'm done. I don't need it. You know, I don't need to write the thing. Um, so there is kind of figuring out how to manage that. And then there are other things, which is like, for me, some of the work that I'm doing, it's in such dialogue with, with friends and other writers and stuff that I have to be talking about it. And that I know I'm not going to figure it out before I die. You know? So I feel like I can never lose the, the juice of it. You know? But I do feel like that's crucial, like knowing that thing of like, I can, you know, this thing that's like, you know, full that you could and, and let it go. Yeah. So, yeah, good question. But I don't know if it's that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you were like, what What do you do or how do you do it? No, I'm just glad to say to talk about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the first one, I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer, but did we ever figure out what kind of scat it was? And these two ladies up here seem to have an idea. <laughs> we were just saying it wasn't deer scat. It wasn't. But it, I don't think you'd be too dangerous with the, the uh, raccoons. So it could have been some kind of fox or something. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. So my second question um, was kind of goes along with that too. What was like your process for this? Was it like you saw the light and you just stopped and wrote it? Or was it like you set a time in the evening or it was the next day or the 
next week you thought back to one or a combination of all of them? Mostly I try to do it every day. And I, you know, like, I, you know, depending on what the day was, like maybe I was teaching or maybe I had other stuff going on and then I'd, it'd be like 11, 20 and I'd be like, because I drafted them quickly. And I'd be like, all right, can I sit down and write this to light? You know, I'd go do it, figure it out. Um, so that was kind of, it wasn't like every day at 9 o'clock in the morning or at night. It was like when I got the time. Some days I had open days, so I was just kind of like <laughs> hanging out looking, you know, hanging out looking. And those days, go figure, like I wrote a lot. Other days I'm kind of running around and like busy and have my head and stuff. I'd have to be like, oh yeah, okay, keep track of like the things. Um, but there was this process, this part of the process, which was, uh, important to me, and I realized it like halfway, four or five months through, that my inclination was to just like write down all these things that delighted me throughout, you know, and I started stacking them up and keeping them in my pocket for if I needed to, needed a delight. And then I write it, I have a piece called Stacking Delights, and it, it occurred to me like, oh, that's against the spirit of the thing. You don't want to hoard delights, you want to trust that delight's going to come. You know, there's a kind of faith. <laughs> um, so I just like say all these delights that I've been like stacking up, you know, got rid of them, I cleared the slate, and then I start again. Um, so that's sort of how it went. That's how it went, yeah, there wasn't a, there wasn't a pattern. And you know, there, like I said, there were days that I didn't do it. You know, there were days, um, and there were days that I wrote like four, you know, probably most of them bad. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> and we'll do a couple more questions. Cool. Hi, I, I really love your writing style. It's to me, it's very kind of stream of consciousness, very conversational. And I'm curious um, kind of about your process after you wrote it, going back and um, any editing that you may have done. How do you how do you ensure that you kind of kept that conversational tone and didn't like edit that out? So I love like when you kind of stop yourself in the middle of a sentence and say and go back like, oh, and then there's this other thing. Anyway, back to this. I really love that. How, so how do you keep yourself from maybe like you know, keep keep true that that style. I that's a that's a neat observation. You know, because one of the things that I did when I transcribed when I started transcribing them, I'd write them by all by hand, my process, you know, there were three rules. It was like write them by hand, write them quickly, and write them every day. And I my first time transcribing them, say the first ten of them or something, my inclination was to like make them really clean. To like take the thing that you're talking about out of it. And I realized, oh, I'm ruining them. I'm killing them, you know? And, and so I needed to get like enough of them down where I could see, start to imagine like what, what is a voice, what is the voice kind of happening here? What is the, the developing way of thinking that the book is doing? So that then I was able to sort of, because they're, they're very revised, but they're very, they're very revised exactly toward what you're saying. You know, when I learned how the sound of conversational, distracted, disruptive, playful thinking is, you know. Because that's what writing is. Writing, writing is imitating that, you know. And doing it, making it really, <laughs> trying to make it even more than if you just did it. If you just did it, it would probably be sloppy. It'd be hard to follow. It would be like, like, man, that's really like, you know, I, like, I appreciate that you're so, you know like your mind, but your mind is like fucked up, you know? <laughs> so you want to, how, how do you translate that into a thing that is like, like a, you know? So yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that, because that was a lot of the figuring out that, that thing, and it, it was kind of challenging. First of all, thanks for 
putting words to the, the exorcist conundrum. Because, <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, yeah. I was feeling that for a lot of my childhood also. So Wait, like, you had some adult make you watch it? Uh, it was like a, um, it was like a big kid. Oh. Yeah, like a 13-year-old. Oh, terrible. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. So, in my life, there was, like, before the exorcist and after. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I'm glad. God, no one has told me that yet. Thank you. Thanks for the first weekend. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm really interested in knowing about your, because you're a wonderful poet, I just first introduced your work in poet, simultaneously with Toy Dare Pat as well. So mm. Oh, neat. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so I'd love to know about your relationship, or how you see the relationship between your essays and your poems, and whether, you know, what you're incorporating from your poetry into your essays, vice versa, do ideas begin and you automatically know what form they're going to take. Mm. I really like to know about that. This is a kind of thing I don't quite, it's, it's mysterious to me a little bit. I mean, one of the things for this book, I knew that I was going to be writing essays. I just decided that's what I'm going to do. The, there is like a formal sort of like something that I think I can point to in terms of what's different between the, the poems and the essays. The poems often have stories embedded in them, but the essays are pretty, they're pretty, they really rely on the story, you know. Um, and, I, and I didn't quite realize that until someone like heard me read some of these. Well, I, was, I would read them out when I was dra- you know, in the process of drafting the book. And someone said, I like those stories you read too. And I was like, those are essays. You know? <laughs> because they're kind of stories. They're like these little stories, a lot of them. Not all of them. Um, and some of them do have this feeling of, you know, they feel more like... Um, like a poem. They feel less like they have a kind of, um, they're maybe more mysterious. They're maybe more music as the, as the manner of meaning and thinking as much as, you know, um, meaning as, as much as, you know, rhetoric or something. Um, so, so some of them do actually sort of have that thing going on, but mostly they're sort of like, they're heavily dependent on stories. But the thing that sort of comes in is some of that music stuff, this sort of attention to the language um, that I think I, you know, I learned to do as a, as a poet, you know? So I kind of like get, get in there on the language in a way that um, I feel like probably has some kind of overlap. I also think there are moments in the essays periodically where I can kind of feel it, where where not everyone will quite know what I'm saying, and because I'm a poet, there's a little bit of permission with that. Like, it might be a little bit like, that's just like a little poem going on. Mm-hmm. We, don't have to, we don't have to understand it. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, the poems, on the other hand, are, you know, often when I don't know how to think about a thing at all, I turn to write poems. There's some, and I don't quite know how to articulate it, but there's some relationship to knowledge or, or lack of knowledge or mystery that is a little bit different between essays, normally for me, that it's a little bit different between essays and poems. Poems feel to me to reside a little bit more, a little bit more deeply in a kind of like profound unknowing, you know? And maybe essays are a little, just a little bit different. Like I always want to sort of be writing out a kind of unknowing, you know, with, with this sort of like light arriving or whatever you call it. But there are times when I can't, that I'll try to be, I'll try to write an essay about something that feels like it's uh, the bullshit form for this. That I need something that's more bodily, more mysterious, less connected to 
rationale, you know, modes of, of thinking, etc. That being said, I'm writing a long essay right now about my relationship to the land that feels very much like what I just described about poems. It feels like kind of deep unknowing. So, you know. Maybe it's just a really long poem. It might be a long poem. In some ways, I think of it as, a, oh, this is a long poem. And I think I wonder how my editor's going to handle this. How an editor is going to handle this because it's it's really sort of it's thinking very much like I think a poem thinks and it's having these sort of revelations that poems have for me, which take which are you know to a different level. But it's an essay, <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. How, how how do you define an essay? I mean, it's not an explanation. An essay is a trial, or a try, or an attempt. That's all essay means, you know, just an attempt. So, which makes to me, like, the more I think about it, someone might know more about this and challenge me on that. I'm happy to. Uh, but I think it's, it, to me, it's the most open form, in a way. Like, kind of what a novel is. A novel can be crazy, it can be anything. Kind of what poems are. Poems can be crazy, they can be all kind of thing. But an essay is just an attempt. So it's really not too much to say that you could do a dance and be like, this is an essay, you know? Um, so yeah, so that's, I mean, that's really interesting to me too, you know, like that the, the form is really, really capacious. And the way we teach it in schools is so dumb, you know? Like people come thinking, you're sort of like this five-paragraph essay, like people hate the idea of essays so often because they think of them as like these, these like, measured uh, chunks of knowledge, you know, of stable knowledge. But it's actually not that. It's just an attempt. You know, it's just a try. Thank you, Ross. This Thank was you. really incredible, and I feel uplifted and inspired. Thank you all for spending your evening with us. I hope you feel the same. Thank you for coming. It's good to talk to you. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.